0: Okay, so I hope you have your Bibles there, but before we get into the the detail of the text, we have to understand something about Mark's gospel as a whole. So one thing that Mark does differently to the other gospels is that he he sort of sandwiches stories together. So he starts the story, then introduces something else, and then goes back to the original one. So the most obvious one that you could probably think of is with Jairus' daughter and the woman who was healed by touching Jesus' cloak. Story A, then story B, and then story A again. Now, that's not a break in the, in the thought. It's, it's trying to use contrasting images to make an important theological point. So our sandwich this morning is made up of the woman at the cross mentioned verse 40. Then, then the middle part of that section mentions Joseph of Arimathea in verses 42 to 46. And then the final account of the woman at the tomb in chapter 16. So if you're taking notes, you can, you can box off those sections to keep your thoughts in order. The woman at the cross, Joseph before Pilate, and then the woman at the tomb. And so as we get into the text, we're going to be looking for how the reactions of the woman and the reactions of Joseph play against one another to tell us something important. So let's look at the, the woman's reactions first. Verse 40. So ignore all the titles and the headings in your Bibles here. What we have here, this is the end of the crucifixion narrative. So Jesus has breathed his last, the curtain was torn in two, and the centurion has just named Jesus as the Son of God. And then we get this little almost strange comment. Some women were watching from a distance. So it's not up close and personal, not at the foot of the cross, but at a distance. In John's gospel, we read that that some people were close enough for Jesus to talk to. But the sense here with with this group is of people sort of just surveying the scene, wanting to see but but not being close enough to identify themselves with the proceedings. Almost like fearful onlookers. In verse 41, it is noted that they had been with Jesus, that that they had followed him and, and cared for him, but now here they stand back Fear holds them back. We next meet the woman again in the final part of the sandwich. Look to verse 47. Mary, again a witness to what's going on, notice, but not a participant, sees where Jesus was buried. And then in chapter 16 we get the group coming to anoint the body. So in the narrative, a day has passed since the crucif- crucifixion. Jesus was buried just before the Sabbath, so they, they, they couldn't have visited the body then. But now when they could, they'd go to the tomb. And if you take notes, just, just underline or, or write down how they are portrayed throughout the whole thing here. Verse 3, nervously asking, who's going to roll the stone away? Verse 5, they were alarmed. Verse 8, they were trembling and bewildered. They fled and finally... They said nothing to everyone because they were afraid. Even though they had been commanded to talk, their fear inhibited their faith. And I suppose for us that's all perfectly understandable. These are extraordinary events. But it's clear here that they are being portrayed as being fearful and as being onlookers. Now we shouldn't see this as a dig at, at the woman here. They, they play a really important part. Firstly, because of the fact that they are women gives real weight to the historicity of the account. So at the time of the crucifixion, the woman's testimony was not legally binding. And, and so if, if people were making up a story about the resurrection, then they definitely would not have included this detail. But it also shows us something about Jesus that he, he chose woman to appear to first in his resurrected body where where the first Adam hides behind his wife and dishonors her, that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, honors these women. And if you read throughout the whole of Mark, women are valued and praised. So none of this is about who they are, okay? It's all about their reaction. So note that down as important on each side of this story. Fear directs their action. But look with me now to the middle of that sandwich verse, verse 43 here we get Joseph of Arimathea so we know that he's part of the ruling council and and in John's gospel we we read that he had previously been a secret follower of Jesus because he was afraid of the Jews but look at how he's described now he went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body Here he is, risking his reputation with the Jews, maybe risking punishment by the Romans, entering into the action. And then when he gets the body, what does he do? Verse 46, he takes it down. So he's he's a wealthy guy, but he doesn't pay someone else to do it. He doesn't stand at a distance. He takes down the body of his Lord. He wrapped it in linen. Nobody who saw would be in any doubt about his loyalty. He placed it in a tomb and he rolled the stone against the entrance. So think of his hands. Dirty, maybe, maybe bruised, maybe cut up. He's got skin in the game. All this fear from before seems to have gone now. Now, like in the Last Supper, he takes Jesus' body to himself. No more secrets. He is identified in the strongest possible way and at the worst possible time with Jesus. So can we see the contrasts in the sandwich here? The woman had been with Jesus but, but now feared. Joseph had feared but was now with Jesus. The women are described as being fearful. Joseph as being bold. The woman stood at a distance. Joseph held Jesus' body. Now, Now clearly again to reiterate the point is not that women are bad and Joseph was good. That's not how Mark writes. The point is that it is the reactions that we are to focus on. Fear versus courage. Inaction versus action. Mark concludes his gospel account making the point that the true discipleship is marked by courage and action, not fear and inaction. And so we should ask ourselves, well, why does Mark choose to push this point when talking about the resurrection? What, what does the resurrection have to do with fear and courage? Well, the answer to that, we need to think about what the resurrection means for us not what the the forms and traditions of Easter mean to us not not why we have chocolate eggs but but what does it mean to live on this side of the cross and the tomb on Friday we got together and identified with the cross we were united to Christ in his sufferings we died with Christ the old man all our sin sin and shame was placed upon him and nailed to that cross The cancerous tar of sin that stained our hearts was cut out and thrown away. All the weight of failings, all the rebellion, all the pain of our sin was taken, all of it. We moved out of the kingdom of darkness, out from the slavery to sin. We became clean, innocent, as if we had never sinned. All the debt of sin was paid. Like making your your last mortgage payment and knowing that the bank no longer has any claim over you. Our sin was paid for. But not only that, not only was the, the negative debt removed from us and paid by Jesus, not only are we united to Christ on Friday in his death, but if we died with him, then we were also raised with him. On Sunday, he rose from the dead. The Spirit brought new life and air, filled his lungs again, and he walked out of that grave. He rose victorious and ascended to the Father where he mediates for us so that we too can come to the throne room. Not as rebels before a vengeful king, but as heirs come home. On Easter Sunday, we celebrate that we are risen with Christ. That we don't just have the blessings of having the sins forgiven, of the negative being removed but we also have the joy of becoming heirs, of gaining standing with the Lord of the universe. Living on this side of the cross and the tomb means that we have been both forgiven and made righteous in God's sight. So rejoice, saints, and know that God smiles on you. And yet, like the pull of an old habit, we can still feel that fear that causes us to keep our distance. To cause us to observe from afar. Some of us fear that we that we actually haven't been forgiven, that that our sin is just too great. We still feel the weight of shame, that, that the pain of what that does to our souls. And we look at ourselves and we see brokenness like what we've done or, or what's been done to us has left us forever out in the cold. And that fear causes us to, to withdraw, to build walls around our hearts, to, to construct the perfect mask that maintains our image but, but keeps everyone at arm's length. Or maybe that fear causes us to, to self-destruct, to think, why bother trying if I'm never going to change? And so we do the opposite of what we know that we should to avoid the pain of being so close to what we want but never quite touching it. Fear keeps us at a distance. It holds us back. But but the truth of it is that that fear that we have is built upon a lie. We have confused our advocate for our accuser. It is Satan that tempts us to despair, not Christ. It is the enemy that tries to get us to to look at ourselves and, and the fire of sin that we hold so that we ignore the oceans of grace that God brings to the table. When we think that our sin is too great for God, we are looking at the wrong thing. Living on this side of the cross lets us see just how great his mercy is. Let's us see that he has drained the cup dry. And there's not one speck of our sin that has passed him by. Brothers and sisters, if you know Christ, then there is no need for you to fear if his grace is sufficient for you. But there is a need to put to death the fear that you have so that you can walk closer with Christ so you can follow him wherever he leads you. Shame can stop us from from opening up, stop us asking for prayer, stop us getting help. So put it to death. Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. There's no leftover sin holding him there. Even your deepest shame has been dealt with. Know this morning that you are part of the communion of saints. Let your family here help you with the consequences of whatever past that you have so that you can hold on to the truth of God's grace. Joseph gives us this example of rising above the situation and taking hold of Jesus' body. His shame at being a secret follower from before is gone. It's been killed with Christ. And so when that fear is gone and holding on to his new status as being a saint, he acts. What might it look like today for you to let go of your fear and walk towards Jesus? For some of us, though, the, the, the fear isn't about our forgiveness. It's in fearing if we will ever actually be made righteous. We're fine with the, the negative side of the equation being gone, but, but we wonder if we're ever going to receive the positive blessings. We see the cross as as having given us countless second chances and so countless opportunities for failure. We get a a father who doesn't disown us but, but still stands apart, disappointed at our continuous failings. And so we have the fear of never measuring up, fear of messing up, fear that our next second chance is going to be our last one. Fear that we might never get the relationship with God that our souls long for. And that fear causes us to hold back, to just not get too connected, not too emotional, to accept a level of faith and never push for more. We become the fearful observers of what's going on without ever really moving forwards. There is a faith there, but it doesn't seem to be powerful enough to, to pierce our fear and lead us to action. But when we see that being raised with Christ means that our future is secure, that we have been raised to an unbreakable relationship with God, and that since Christ is our hope of glory and since we have been united with him, that that hope is guaranteed, then, then all those fears just look a bit Silly. All those things that create a dry, lifeless Christianity, social standing, what people think, how we've always done things, will they start to lose their draw because of the glory that awaits us? Every week we we gather on Sunday. Every week we celebrate the resurrection because we need to hold on, hold on to it fast to empower our lives. It's what allows us to see that the things that this world tells us are so important are actually so inconsequential in the vast scale of eternity. It's what allows us to overcome our fear and cling to Christ. Joseph gives us this example of letting go of his past life and taking hold of Christ's body. His ambition and goal in life has has forever changed as his very purpose is now risen with Christ. And so his new status as being a saint compels him to act. Throughout Mark's gospel, true discipleship is spoken of, not in terms of power and of might and of capacity, but in terms of self-sacrifice and dependence. The question is not, can I do this? It's what might I need to put down to follow my God. Some of us will need to consider if fear is holding us back from a fuller walk with the Lord. If fear is stopping us from engaging further in the Bible. Stopping us from forming community. Or maybe even holding us back from speaking as we have been commanded to. And if that's you today, then I just urge you to look to the empty tomb. Look to the resurrected Lord. You have been forgiven. Nothing stands between you and him. And you have been made righteous. He will not reject you. Oh, the joy of the life that is set before us, before all of us. Both the taste of it when we that we get here in this life, but also the fullness of what it will mean. When we too are resurrected into eternal life with Him, what we gain through Christ's victory over death should move us to action because the fear that holds us back is stripped away on Easter Sunday. It has lost its power and will only have what you give it. Christ's resurrection has changed everything. That is what Joseph knew. That is what drove away his fear and led him to come so close to Jesus regardless of the consequences. He was waiting for the kingdom. And even after Jesus' death, even after it seemed that that all was lost, in that deepest and darkest of valleys, he moved towards his king. Imagine his joy when when that same body that he had wrapped in linens the same body that he'd left behind the stone, the same heart that he had felt lie still, beat again, walked again, spoke again. Can you imagine the joy that he must have felt knowing that his Lord lives, that the kingdom had come? It's this joy, this realization that spurred the early church, that drives our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church today, that calls to us now, Jesus is alive. The great weapon of the enemy has been defeated. Death has lost its sting. The battle has been won. And so what is left for us to fear? What Paul called light and momentary afflictions? In the darkness of our own isolation, that might seem too great to overcome too fearful. But when the light of the resurrected Christ shines in our lives, then we can be moved to act, to take hold of Jesus, to walk through those doors and into every day of our lives, rejoicing that the King has come. As the band come back up now and we prepare to sing again, I want you to consider your own lives. Do you feel like the woman watching on from afar? Do you long to to hold on to Jesus, but you feel something just holding you back? Mark concludes his account with this sandwich so that we can see that it is the force of the resurrection of knowing exactly where we stand with God that will give us the courage to follow him. It is in knowing that we are united to Christ that lets us seek his glory, even if that means our suffering. It is knowing that the victory he won over death is complete and it drives out fear. It's in knowing that we are made children of God that gives us confidence to stand. Brothers and sisters, we should rejoice because of what God has done. And we should take that joy and let it lead to action in our lives. And so if you love the Lord, stand with me now. And let our praise echo through the ages as we give him the glory. Let's stand and let's sing together.